0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Archer goes offline after a security incident. Suspicions of espionage against COVID-19 research scammers smish victims with bogus contact tracing messages Ramsey malware goes after air-gapped systems AKO ransomware now places a surcharge on deletion of stolen data Google boots creepware apps with the help of the creep rank algorithm Johannes Ulrich explains that when it comes to malicious binaries bypassing anti-malware filters, size matters Our guest is Pat Craven director of the Center for Cyber Safety and Education on the security of social media apps. And kooky 5G conspiracists go after cell towers in the U.S. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, May 14th, 2020. The UK-based Archer Academic Supercomputing System has sustained what the network calls a security exploitation. ...that led its administrators to rewrite passwords and SSH keys. They also took Archer offline while the incident was investigated, the Register reports. Archer's managers have warned that computers in Europe may also be affected... ...and that users should not expect access to be restored before tomorrow at the earliest. The Register says that knowledgeable speculation points out... ...that Archer is an obvious resource for research work by computational biologists as well as those modeling the potential further spread of the novel coronavirus, which also makes it an obvious target for espionage. Yesterday's joint statement by the U.S. FBI and CISA warning that Chinese intelligence services are engaged in a far-reaching campaign to collect against COVID-19 research has elicited the foreseeable response from officials in the People's Republic. It's slander, Reuters quotes a foreign ministry spokesman as saying, Spokesman Zhao Lijian also said that any interference with research ought to be condemned. The joint warning is interesting for the way the Bureau and CISA connect espionage with damage to the research itself. Quote, The potential theft of this information jeopardizes the delivery of secure, effective, and efficient treatment options. End quote. So the risk appears to be more than the usual competitive threat to intellectual property that the U.S. has typically complained of, in connection with Chinese espionage. The NHSX-sponsored contact tracing app the scammers are mimicking is now undergoing a closed beta trial on the Isle of Wight. Gizmodo says that the Isle's MP, Bob Seely has offered a generally optimistic appraisal of how the app's doing. He notes that it's, quote, throwing up lots of really good information, end quote, of course, it's only to be expected that any application developed and deployed under emergency conditions would experience problems, and this one is no different. Preliminary reports from users complain that the app is a battery hog and that the permissions it asks for are confusing. Researchers who've looked at the system say that they've found other issues, in particular problems with iOS-Android interoperability. ESET has described Ramsey and attack designed to exploit air-gapped computers. It's not that Ramsey defeats air-gapping in some spooky or exotic way. Instead, it concentrates on other infection vectors like removable media. ZDNet says that Ramsey appears to collect Word, PDF, and ZIP documents in a hidden folder, where they're staged for later exfiltration. Few victims have so far been identified, which suggests to ESET that Ramsey remains in a relatively early stage of development. There's no attribution, but Ramsey appears to share artifacts with Dark Hotel's retro malware. Ransomware gangs routinely steal victims' data to gain additional leverage. Bleeping Computer reports that one gang, the operators of AKO, are now also imposing a surcharge for deleting their copies of stolen files. If you've got school-aged kids, chances are they are home from school these days, thanks to the COVID-19 shutdowns. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are those same kids have access to a variety of online social media services, which they are using to keep in touch with their friends and classmates during the shutdown. And all that increased time spent online opens up the potential for bad things to happen. Pat Craven is director of the Center for Cyber Safety and Education.
1: What's amazing, Dave, is that it's possible for our kids to actually spend more time online. You know who thought that was going to be the situation, and and now <laughs> and now practically by law they're supposed to be spending more time online, and so it's just has ramped up tremendously. All the challenges from a safety standpoint with our children and what they're doing, and parents are working from home and they're busy and they're trying to teach kids and homeschool, and and there's less even less supervision than we had in just months ago. So it's been a, a pretty fascinating thing and a pretty dangerous. Uh, The kids are uh, utilizing, and and, and adults as well, we're utilizing different apps, different ways to connect and and to be social with people and and try to have fun. And um, there comes risks with all of that.
0: What about, uh, you know, as as people have had to go home and start doing their work from home and using their home networks for business uses, what's the concern of your kids having some of these apps on their devices on a network that's shared with the work you're doing for business.
1: Well, that's that's a great point, and something we try to really stress with people is that yes, you're now sitting at home and you're working on potentially confidential materials for for the office, and you're on that same network on that same Wi-Fi that the kids are out exploring the internet with, and and that opens you up to so many more vulnerabilities that we don't think about. That we think of everything being separate, but they're all running through that same router, through that same Wi-Fi, and and any kind of breach could come back and actually get into you, into your laptop, and then you eventually even send a document that could be corrupted to uh, to somebody in accounting, and, and it just the line goes down and down. So it's something that we really have to think about tremendously.
0: Is it reasonable to uh, to do occasional uh, audits of these devices to go through and just check through the, the apps and see what permissions have been granted and just uh, do a little reality check there?
1: Absolutely. Either you, even if you've done it at the beginning, if you've gone in and set it to private or um, that they can't just have anybody part of the conversation, that it's friends only, go back and check that. There, there's constant updates to these apps Uh, And also, too, of course, the child might switch something, uh, thinking they're uh, making it better and easier to use, and and then they have allowed more vulnerabilities. So um, it is. It is something that we need to do with all of the different platforms that uh, the kids are on or even ourselves. Again, uh, you know, that we're using all these different apps for uh, social stuff or for work even to make sure that our settings haven't been changed or adjusted, or a new update came down that uh, set things back to default. Um, So we have to make sure of that.
0: That's Pat Craven from the Center for Cyber Safety and Education. According to ZDNet, Google has used an algorithm, CreepRank, developed by a university industry team to identify 813 creepware apps for removal from the Play Store. Creepware is similar to spyware or stalkerware, only generally less aggressive. ZDNet explains that it's used to stalk, harass, defraud, or threaten another person, directly or indirectly. And finally, the Luddites and weirdos who've been trashing cell towers in the UK, Belgium, and the Netherlands because they've heard that 5G causes coronavirus have inspired their conspiracy-minded soulmates in the States to take similar action and all we can do is wonder why it took everybody so long. There have now been incidents reported in the U.S., and the Washington Post says the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is working on an advisory and a plan to help telcos protect their equipment. The Post mentions disinformation in their coverage, but this seems likelier to be a case of misinformation. It also provides a discouraging case study of rumor convergence the strange bedfellows passionate commitment to a cause can make, the reach of influencers, and the sad futility of much-rumor control. One wonders how much the use of virus for both a class of pathogen and a kind of malware have contributed to the popular mania. The Post quotes Eric van Rongen of the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection, as saying, quote, It is physically impossible that electromagnetic fields transfer particles like viruses. End quote. Needless to say, the activists whacking cell towers know better. Of course, it stands to reason viruses could travel that way. Do your own research, sheeple. And so on. Some of the attacks, sources say, may have been acts of ecotage, taking opportunistic advantage of the pandemic to damage counter-to-nature infrastructure. And there's been no shortage of celebrity influencers sharing the dope that 5G causes COVID-19. The British light welterweight boxer and philanthropist Amir Khan, the singer Anne-Marie, responsible for Chao Adios and Rockabye, among other hits, the actor Woody Harrelson, known for Cheers and Zombieland, have been particularly mentioned in Dispatches. For our part, we're going with Mr. Van Rongen over Mr. Harrelson. It's dismaying, if not unexpected, to see how the impulse to do damage like this can be well beyond the reach of rumor control. The Federal Emergency Management Agency and others have tried, but with apparent indifferent success. Alas.
2: Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program
0: Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, uh, Something you all have been tracking is the use of very large malicious binaries to bypass some anti-malware filters. What's going on here?
2: Yes, so uh, when you're looking at most malware, it's relatively compact. Like, you know, it's this uh, little uh, basic macro or something like this that then downloads uh, maybe some other uh, little bit of uh, malware. But we're often talking about, you know, a couple megabytes only. Now, what we ran into uh, was a malicious uh, binary that actually was a few hundred megabytes in size. Hmm. And everyone wondering why, you know, why wouldn't it hack or bother with this? Because uh, that's going to get stuck in um, in mail filters, for example. You know, most mail systems will not deal uh, with binaries like this. Now, this was downloaded via HTTP, but even then, off-large downloads like this fail, but uh, the advantage of these large downloads is that a lot of anti-malware systems have essentially an upper limit to what's the largest piece of uh, binary software they're going to inspect, and hmm. they're probably going to bypass uh, that limit uh, by essentially just, in this case, adding some uh, kits drawings uh, to the uh, to the binary.
0: Right, just some some junk to just bulk up the size of the file.
2: Yeah, uh, like what what happened in this case was um, we pulled it out. It was it looked like his drawings could be well, maybe the Malware author wasn't really the greatest artist, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so some scribbles, so kind of that, judge, right? uh, uh, <laughs> some faces you could make out and such. Uh, but um, but that's basically what what made up the bulk of uh, this binary. And of course, you know, any kind of anti malware they're looking just at that additional code. What uh, probably not considered malicious. And that wasn't really the malicious part. The malicious part was you know, the, the usual uh, malware code, I think a download or something like this that, uh, that was attached there.
0: You know, it reminds me of uh, just in day-to-day use of things like Google Drive, you know, if you have a, a file that you're storing there and you want to download it, if it's larger than a certain size, uh, Google Drive will pop up and say, you know, hey, this is uh, too large for our usual virus scan. Do you want to grab it anyway? And, well, yeah, I want to grab it anyway. I need that file.
2: Yeah, and there, there's really another option. Like, it's not that you can say, hey, it's large. Uh, let me wait a couple minutes until you scan it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not an option here. It's really just, you know, do you want to get work done or do you not want to get work done? That's sort of uh, <laughs> right. how that dialogue really looks to the user.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you feel lucky? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I like, guess, ironic course, coming from Google, yeah.
2: Yeah, and of course, you know, Google is a trusted site in some ways. Yeah? So you You know, you you consider this more like a document coming from Google in this case versus something coming from an untrusted source. Yeah.
0: Now, they were not only uh, using large malicious binaries, but you were also seeing corrupt documents as well?
2: Yeah, that's the other thing uh, we saw. And that's really an issue that keeps popping up, not just uh, with malware, but also network traffic, that software has gotten pretty good in dealing with corrupt documents like I always joke mm. when I talk about sort of web applications, it's pretty much unknown that someone has sort of a completely standard compliant HTML page. You know, they, they always do something <laughs> weird and tricky. Uh, here was a Word document that sort of started with a new line character. And it turns out certain versions of Word just ignore that new line character and it will mm. nicely display the document, which was malicious in this case. But uh, some of the scanning tools... Well, they say, hey, this is, a malicious. this is not a malicious, this is an invalid document. I don't really bother scanning it. And they may even have
0: problems parsing the document
2: because of uh, these uh, additional characters.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So the, the, uh, the anti-malware software lacks the sophistication that the native software has to deal with a, a document that's out of spec.
2: Correct. And uh, since this also depends on the exact version of work you're running, this is something that one user may open and nothing happens because they're using like an older or newer version of vert uh, while another user that uses that version of vert that does that is able to open a document will get infected so this mm-hmm. makes analysis of malware much more difficult also of course if you're running and that's sort of how we came across this if you're running a document in a sandbox uh, you often use a fairly specific version of vert that just you know runs well in the sandbox that you have sort of instrumented to work well uh, within the sandbox. If that version is not the same that your end users are running, then, of course, you may miss attacks like this.
0: Right, right. All right, well, interesting uh, stuff as always. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's the CyberWire.